Welcome to Chronosphere Fiction. This is your pilot, Daniel French. Prepare to be taken to a nostalgic place where you will meet a curious individual in a prose written by Blake Benlin. We give to you the thing on the rock. The Thing on the Rock by Blake Benlin. It came from the sea. At least, that's what the people of Messina assumed. Although none had seen it rise from the water, the creature's attributes and its unwavering proximity to the ocean seemed to eliminate any other possibility. The first to catch sight of the thing was Sammy Baker, a typically energetic and imaginative lad of nine. Messina was a small town, 500 residents or so, and this did not work in Sammy's favor. As one might expect, there weren't too many boys his age with whom he could romp and play. There were a few, but not enough to ensure a playmate whenever he desired one. And since he had no inclination to waste his youthful days on girls, Sammy was forced to entertain himself half of the time. It was a Saturday morning. It was August, and it was 1963. It was also uncommonly cool. This was what Sammy thought to himself as he walked along the shore. There was always a pleasant ocean breeze, but today was downright chilly, so he thought. He briefly considered turning back, running home, and retrieving his coat, but, fearful of proving thus a wimp, quickly cast this thought aside, deciding that a real man isn't troubled by the brisk air. Not to mention the fact that he was a quarter of the way there already. He was headed to one of his favorite spots. Shipwreck Cove, he called it, although the shipwreck amounted to little more than a few planks of wood embedded in the beach and no cove to speak of. This is where he went when he was alone, only keen on taking roads less traveled when he had the chance to share the experience with another. He would examine the wreckage and theorize as to its origin. A Spanish galleon driven ashore by a tempest, a pirate ship that had been attacked by some terrible sea monster. Who knew? Sammy never figured it out. But he never ran out of ideas, either. One thing, however, was for sure. This was his spot. It sat approximately one mile from the measly stretch of beach that folks from Messina would frequent. This was where he could be alone, where he could think, where he could dream. By now, he was three-quarters of the way there. The journey was rarely eventful. Never any people, no beached whales, no giant sand crabs or anything of the sort. Just beach. Every once in a while, a mound of kelp, or on a good day, a lobster shell, or maybe even a sand dollar. But not today. Today it appeared as though he would reach his destination unimpeded by distraction. He just had to round the bend up ahead. For no particular reason, he kept his eyes on his feet. It was a fairly normal day, and normal thoughts ran through his head. It suddenly occurred to him that he could surely see Shipwreck Cove from where he was, and so, not a care in the world, Sammy looked up. At first it escaped notice. Way up ahead was Shipwreck Cove. All was as it should be. 
But Sammy soon realized that there was an abnormality upon which he was not directing his focus. Jutting out of the sea just before Shipwreck Cove was a great rock. This was not out of the ordinary. It had always been there, jagged and formidable. Sammy had never climbed the rock. He never tried. It was a little too far out, but it often factored into his theories as to the source of the nautical remnants. What alarmed Sammy was that he could plainly tell without looking directly at it that there was something atop the rock. Something big. Something that shouldn't be there. His pace slowed significantly, and he chose not to look at the rock, lest it realize that Sammy had taken notice of it, whatever it was. Then Sammy felt like the wimp that he tried so desperately not to be. Afraid? So what if something's on the rock? It's probably just a sea lion. A big, big, big sea lion. Taking a deep breath and then feeling ashamed for doing so, he turned his eyes to the rock. It took all his strength to stifle a scream. Mom! Dad! Sammy cried as he burst through the front door. His father was sitting in the cushioned armchair in the living room, reading through the paper for the second time this morning, a habit of his, while his mother was pacing back and forth across the kitchen floor, fingering through a cookbook and weighing dinner options. Both were taken by surprise when their only child abruptly appeared, frenzied and out of breath. What's the matter? What's wrong? His father asked, putting the paper aside. Sammy was unable to speak, owing to a combination of exhaustion and persistent terror. He very nearly collapsed on the carpet then and there. His mother hurried into the room and gasped upon seeing the state of her son. What happened to him? I don't know, his father said, standing. He placed his hands on his son's shoulders, and he could see the residue of horror on his face. Sam, tell us what happened. Somehow, he rediscovered his voice. There's... A monster. A monster? There was audible disbelief in this response. Sammy's imagination had always been active, but up until now he had known exactly what was real and what wasn't. Did he really think that he had seen a monster? No. He was just playing around. His father's mind was filled to the brim with confusion that Sammy should all of a sudden include him in his little games. Disappointment, for he had truly been worried that something was seriously wrong. And perhaps, in the darkest recess, the tiniest smidgen of doubt that maybe such unusual behavior did in fact arrive from something substantial. But his father was nowhere near admitting such doubt to himself. He was going to act as any parent should when their child takes something a bit too far. Samuel, that's not funny. You had me worried. You had both of us worried, he said. His mother, impressed by her son's commitment, played along. Well, the monster can't get you in here. Sammy was still far too upset to be frustrated by the initial reaction of his parents. No, there's a monster by Shipwreck Cove, sitting on a rock. I saw it. It's there. This was becoming bothersome. If it wasn't a game, maybe he had simply been mistaken. Maybe it wasn't a monster, Sam, his mother pointed out. It was. I saw it. His father had to put an end to this. Well, what did it look like? It was big. I I was kind of far away. I, I didn't see it too well. Well, then maybe whatever you saw wasn't a monster at all, his father replied. Sammy began to stutter, unable to rebut, although he was sure of what he'd seen. There came a voice from the doorway. 
Ah, hello there. There stood Mike Weathersby, the local grocer, a kind and optimistic man. As Sammy ran home, his unmistakably frightened demeanor had attracted a fair bit of attention, and seeing as everyone knew everyone, as is often the case in small towns, a small crowd of concerned townsfolk had gathered on their front porch and lawn. A little over a dozen of them were there, all familiar faces. Everything all right, Jim? Sammy's father blushed with embarrassment. Now he had to explain himself, or his son rather, to his friends and neighbors. He was a tad angry that his son's inexplicable behavior should bring unwanted attention. This didn't have to happen. Everything's all right, Mike. Everything's fine. I think your son had himself a scare. Uh, yes, apparently he saw a monster. A monster? <laughs> this was Sammy's chance. I did! I saw a monster! I swear! Sammy's father hid his face in his hands, mortified that his son was attempting to drag others into this. Why? Where did you see this monster? asked Colonel Peterson, genuinely curious. Colonel Peterson was one of the town's more recognizable characters. He had served during both World War II and Korea, yet no one knew for sure what rank he held. Since people were too polite to ask, and he was too proud to correct them, everyone called him Colonel. He was a staunch, militaristic old fellow, but a charming addition to Messina nonetheless. Sammy answered the colonel. Sitting by the beach on a big rock in the ocean. Where is this rock? asked the colonel. At last, Sammy began to cool down, comforted that someone seemed interested in what he had to say. It's a 30-minute walk from where everyone swims. North or south? I think north. Maybe someone should go investigate joked Mr. Scott. Mr. Scott worked at the hardware store with Sammy's father. His retort garnered a few chuckles. Sammy's father had had enough. He had no choice but to demonstrate to everyone that he could effectively teach his son what was real and what wasn't. That's a great idea. Why don't I drive over to the bluffs? I should be able to see it from there. Maybe you could uh, do it the second opinion, Sam. Hmm? Sammy had no answer. He wanted people to believe him but he didn't know if the monster was dangerous or not. And if you're right, Sammy's father continued, we can all get our torches and pitchforks out of our closets. How does that sound? <laughs> Amidst the good-humored laughter of the crowd, Sammy's father made for the garage before his son could object, and within minutes he was backing out of the driveway and disappearing at the end of the block. This whole incident just so happened to be the most exciting thing that had occurred in Messina since Fred Norris down the road purchased a color TV two months prior, and so the crowd chose not to disperse with the departure of Sammy's father, choosing instead to see this through to the end. After ruffling her son's hair in what he thought was a little more than an accusation of childishness, Sammy's mother stepped outside and mingled, asking Mr. Scott about Mrs. Scott, speaking with Mrs. Gardenia about her infant child, etc., in fact, they all bantered, thoroughly enjoying the occasion. The crowd itself soon attracted attention, and before long, the lawn swelled with friends and neighbors and friends of friends and friends of neighbors, eager for a meager quantity of amusement at best. This was not entirely unusual. In a small town, excitement is hard to come by. Sammy was thankful, however, that the whole affair drew two friends of his own, Lon and Garrett. Did it look like Frankenstein or Dracula? Garrett inquired. No, it, it wasn't that kind of monster. Well, what did it look like then? Asked Lon. I told you, I, I didn't get close to it. They believed what Sammy told them wholeheartedly, because they wanted to believe. 
It was clear that there was nothing Lon and Garrett wanted more than to be so privileged as to catch a glimpse of this monster. Christmas had come early. Sammy pitied their naivety in a way that made him feel mature, but did not attempt to explain to them the horror of this encounter. After all, why would he want to seem like a wimp when he could play himself up as a hero? The car eventually drove into sight. A hush fell over the crowd as everyone waited in spirited anticipation for the status on this monster. Sammy's father pulled into the driveway. This was to be the grand finale, the punchline. But when Sammy's father exited the vehicle, smiles faded, good humor soured, and it was apparent that there was to be more excitement than previously expected. Sammy's father, a beacon of masculinity, tall, strongly built, the picturesque patriarch, was as white as a sheet. His mouth was agape, his eyes stared at nothing. It was obvious to Sammy that he had seen it. It was his wife that broke the ensuing silence. Honey, what's wrong? She received no answer. Jim, Jim, what did you see? After a pause that seemed endless, Sammy's father spoke in a hushed voice. It's there. It's real. Jim, are you yanking our chain? Just look at the poor man. He's seen something, by God. I, I don't know what it is, Sammy's father whispered. There was growing concern amongst those present, gravity that weighed on each and every one of them. Something really was there. Something. Jim, what did you see? A voice in the crowd demanded. I was sitting on the rock, just like Sam said. In Messina, there were but two law enforcement officials, Carl Meyer and his 20-year-old son, Stephen. The former was in attendance and thought it right to speak up at the moment. Everyone, it's important that we stay calm. We don't know what's going on. I think we should try and find out. The time had come for Colonel Peterson to take control. In chaos, he thrived. He had led men against monsters before. He could do so again if necessary. He knew Carl to be a timid man, unfit to lead, and knew that he was doing the man a favor, relieving him of duty. Peterson was the real peacekeeper here, because he was the only seasoned war bringer. All right, what we've got to do first is assess the threat, he bellowed like the commanding officer that he was. We don't know who or what it is we're dealing with here, and that's got to change. I need volunteers to join me on a scouting mission. I need willing, able-bodied men. Who's going to enlist? It was midday, and they were fast approaching the bend. It's hard to say whether the men were more unnerved that, in a general sense, they knew what was beyond this bend, or that, in a literal sense, they didn't. There was not a single man that hadn't answered the colonel's call. All volunteered on the spot, given that this was undoubtedly the most exciting thing that had ever happened in Boring Messina, and that there was a pressing need to ascertain the safety of their homes and families, or the very opposite, they would have been hard-pressed to stay behind. Though their curiosity did not match the fearful uncertainty which reigned over them. It was furthermore agreed that each man would willfully flout his respective occupation for the day. Today their only job was being men. No matter. By now, the entire town must have known what was going on and what they were doing. 
Marching at the forefront of his unit was the colonel, in his element, displaying not one iota of fear. Sammy's father was among the enlistees, although he had not spoken since he quietly consented to come along. For that matter, there was very, very little chatter between Sammy's residence and where they were now. Sammy, Garrett, and Lon had all set off with the rest. Garrett's father had agreed to let his son accompany him as soon as he began to beg. Lon's father wasn't about to be shown up by Garrett's father, and so let his son do the same. Sammy never asked his father for permission. He didn't need to. Why did he choose to come along, though? This is what he asked himself as they neared the bend. Ratification? Excitement? Who knew? No turning back now. Sammy looked to Lon and to Garrett on his left and right, respectively and detected that their enthusiasm had faded and that their faces, once brightly lit by boyish curiosity, were now plagued with apprehension. Sammy sensed that the others were probably more frightened than he. Aside from his father, he was the only one that had seen it. He had been the first. This thought emboldened him. Some hesitated just before the unit reached the bend, perhaps expecting, or hoping for, the colonel to give a motivational speech on bravely facing the unknown for the sake of this or that, but it soon became clear that there was to be no procrastination. With no acknowledgement of the significance of the steps that they were taking, they crossed the border into unfamiliarity. Once they had cleared the bend, everyone, except, of course, for the colonel, who had issued no order, came to a halt. Looking back and seeing the reluctance of his brave soldiers to proceed any further, the colonel had no choice but to abandon his hopes for continued advance and settle for this furthest possible vantage point. It goes without saying that the thing was visible. This was where Sammy had first caught sight of it. What they could all see from here was a seated figure in the distance, enormous and black. Though unmoving, it was plainly apparent that this mass was not a part of the rock. Frightened whispers spread through the ranks. The colonel passively allowed for this. Sammy, Lon, and Garrett said nothing. The colonel raised a pair of binoculars, which he kept on his person at all times, no exceptions, to his eyes to have a better look at the creature. He had nothing at all to say when he passed the binoculars to the man behind him, nor did this man when he passed them to another, and so on. It's likely that the boys would not have been given a chance to look through the binoculars, but Lon, ready for adventure at a moment's notice, had brought with him his prized brass telescope. He handed it to Sammy, not even remotely interested in seeing the thing any sooner than necessary. Sammy took the telescope in hand and, peering through it, finally caught a detailed glimpse of the monster. It was humanoid, in that it had two legs, two arms, and a head protruding from its trunk. It was at least ten feet tall, and its limbs were very thick. Its eyes were a dull yellow. Almost every inch of its body was coated in barnacles and muscles. Kelp grew from its chin and its scalp, making it appear as though it had hair and a beard. It had long, unsettling fingers, definitely more than five on each hand. Flies buzzed all around it. What was truly terrible was that it was totally still, patient, its hands resting on its knees. Sammy shuddered as he handed the telescope to Garrett. It was indeed a monster. Now what? Sammy didn't want to think about what could possibly come next. He resigned himself to the helplessness of childhood, assured that the responsibility rested with the adults. Jesus Christ, said the man making use of the binoculars at that point in time. 
The colonel made motions with his hands, ordering the men to fall back. They did just that, retreating cautiously behind the bend where they were out of the monster's line of sight, although it consistently stared ahead at nothing. It seemed that there was even more discomfort and worry than before. Everyone's worst fears had been realized. The men began talking, asking questions of each other, speculating. Buzz of restrained panic. The colonel put an end to this. Everyone, enough! So we have a problem on our hands. Now we know. The question is, what do we do about it? Collect the wives and kids and get the hell out of town, cried Karl Meyer. There were murmurs of agreement. We don't know why that thing is here, said Anthony Duran, the haberdasher. Maybe it means us no harm. But we don't know that for sure, somebody pointed out. Why risk it? The colonel was outraged by the cowardly prospect of evacuation. So we'll simply abandon Messina, our homes, our worldly possessions, run away at the sight of some crustacean-encrusted thing? What did you have in mind, Colonel? asked Mr. Scott. That thing's got to be alive. What's alive can be killed. This notion caused quite a stir with both those in favor of and opposed to a full retreat. But it's huge! Someone said. So is an elephant, but those can be killed with guns, can't they? Some warhawk pointed out. What if shooting it only makes it angry? It's not made of metal, chances are. This is some wild beast like any other, made out of flesh and blood and bone. Nothing like that can be impervious to bullets. The debate went on for some time. The pros and cons of attacking this thing were weighed. Certain factors were considered. It was outnumbered, but then again it may have friends. It hadn't hurt anyone, but then again, better safe than sorry. Other possibilities were explored. We don't live in a vacuum. Let's get the military out here. Let them decide what to do. Not only was the colonel convinced that the people of Messina were more than capable of solving this problem on their own, but it was also concluded that no one for a hundred miles would believe them, and that time was of the essence. Nobody wanted to go to sleep while that thing was ready and able to march into town and lay waste to their homes. All right, the colonel interjected. Can we all at least agree that we've got to find a solution before nightfall? There was concordance. However, it became apparent when the debate resumed that a compromise would not be reached for quite a while. For this reason, the colonel essentially announced an intermission to the civil strife when he ordered half of his force back to Messina to gather other townsfolk that wished to be a part of the decision-making process and to gather firearms, just in case. The general consensus was that a vote would be held on the matter. In a manner of speaking, this bought them time. No one wanted to make a rush decision, especially when both options were unthinkable. The one thing everyone favored, therefore, was putting it off. Sammy, Lon, and Garrett were among those that stayed behind. They passed the time talking about everything. About baseball, about school, about friends. There was a sadness hanging over them like a dark cloud. It felt like the end of the world was approaching. They knew that no matter what, bad things would happen. Do you think they can kill it? Asked Garrett. This had been the first time that the mere existence of the monster had been acknowledged by any one of them in over an hour. I hope, said Lon. I don't want to leave town. I don't want to be eaten, said Garrett despondently. 
It's not going to eat us, responded Sammy. How do you know? Lon asked in a pessimistic tone. I don't think it eats people. Garrett chose not to comment on this postulate. I've never seen anything like it before. I don't think anybody has, Sammy stated, confident that he was the monster expert. Then who knows what it eats, Lon said. Our dads can handle it, said Garrett, trying only to assure himself. I hope. Approximately two hours after the unit had been divided, the mobile contingent appeared on the horizon. With it was a mob of roughly 40 additional recruits from Messina, nearly every one of them armed. If indeed there was to be an attack on the beast, nothing short of an army would carry out the assault. And with the approaching numbers came undeniable comfort. As it drew near, however, it was plain that the mob wanted blood. The face of each man was marked with hateful determination. These men of Messina were not about to allow some salty sea beast to frighten their wives and children or threaten their property, let alone drive them all from their homes. Sammy forgot about the monster altogether, for he sensed trouble approaching in the form of this throng that would, in all likelihood, tolerate no vote. Even the colonel realized that he must tread lightly or otherwise face mutiny. Leading the mob was Gregory Shea, a mysterious recluse that lived on the very edge of Messina, a man that ate only what he hunted and had worn the same clothes for years, or so it was rumored. The children would speak of him as if he was a legend, and counted themselves lucky if they spotted him when twice a year he ventured into town to stock up on supplies. Whether or not he was cruel, none could say, for he so rarely interacted with townsfolk but it was grimly apparent that soon they would all be given a taste of the kind of man he was. How are things on the home front? asked the colonel upon the arrival of this hazardous reinforcement. They were apparently preparing for the end of days back in town. Word of impending doom had spread like wildfire. Everyone was gathering provisions, calling relatives, anticipating the worst. When the volunteers confirmed the creature's existence, Many chose to barricade themselves indoors, and the streets that could be described as bustling moments prior were soon empty. Everyone's scared to death, said Shea. As we see it, there's only one thing to do. Now let's not be too quick, said Mr. Scott. Too quick? There's a minute to waste, Shea retorted in his gravelly underused voice. Uh, we were planning on putting it to a vote. The colonel pointed out. I was led to believe that you wanted to take care of this problem, Peterson, Shea growled. Colonel knew that the time had come to assert his authority. I do. That doesn't mean I'm going to overrule dissenters without showing them any regard. This is a democracy, not a military dictatorship. The colonel and Shea were leaders of a very different sort. No, colonel, this is war. A war is too important to be left to the generals, Shea asserted. Or, that thing is an invader. It doesn't belong here. It's a menace to every one of us. It hasn't done a thing, shouted Mike Weathersby, who was in favor of neither evacuation nor attack, assuming that the creature would eventually return from whence it came. And are you going to wait until it does? You could be putting us all in danger, Shea. I think it's you putting us in danger. You're protecting it. The colonel had to step in. Gentlemen, we cannot fight each other. 
No, we should be biting that damn thing on the rock. The mob loudly expressed its concurrence, growing restless. Things were getting tense. Colonel knew he had lost control, but wasn't about to admit this. Why shouldn't we vote, Greg? What's there to lose? Time. Dusk was closing in, no denying that. It was widely believed that the beast was waiting for darkness to fall before making its move. Greg, the situation is unprecedented. A hasty decision is the precursor of failure. Doing nothing is a guarantee of failure. Now stand aside. The colonel didn't move an inch, and so the standoff began. Shea had a gun. The colonel didn't. But he stood between Shea and the bend. Do I have to repeat myself? No. You have to kill me. I'm going to keep order or die trying. There was a prolonged silence. Shea, smirking, slowly approached the colonel. No one knew what would happen next. Shea planted his feet inches from the colonel. Stillness. Then, without warning, Shea swiftly smacked the colonel across the face with the butt of his rifle. The colonel fell and Shea carried on toward the bend, unhindered. He gestured for his men to follow, but before they could do so, the colonel reached into his jacket and produced a revolver. Wasting no time, the colonel shot Shea through the back of the knee and fell forward, inadvertently tossing his rifle beyond reach. The colonel climbed to his feet, blood gushing from his broken nose. Everyone stared at him in awe. Shea's supporters may have outnumbered the colonel's, but not a one had come all this way to shoot a neighbor. The colonel had restored order and had reasserted his leadership. His rule was now undisputed. Carl, Peter, get Greg back to town and see that he's patched up. Shea was helped to his feet, having been bested. He was far too embarrassed to say a word as he was escorted away. Now, began the colonel once Shea was out of sight and out of mind. Now, maybe we can be reasonable about things. What do we do? Do we attack that thing or not? Now's my time, Sammy the monster expert thought to himself. Why don't we see if it'll leave first? Many dismissed this idea as childish before giving it any thought at all. But the colonel knew better. He was reminded that a threat of force could be recognized and understood almost universally. On many occasions had he aimed guns at men that didn't speak his language, and yet they knew full well his intent. Why shouldn't the same principles theoretically apply? Why shouldn't a number of armed men be able to frighten this seemingly docile creature? An ultimatum, the colonel said, intrigued. It was at this point that the others began to realize that perhaps a simple show of force was all that it would take. No sweat, no bullets, just a demonstration of hostility and ill will. An all-out attack wouldn't be necessary if the thing chose to retreat. Maybe it wasn't aggressive at all, whatever it was. The plan began to come together in a colonel's head. We approach it. We make noise. Fire our guns into the air. See if it leaves. If it doesn't, we turn our guns on it. This proposal enjoyed the immediate support of the Warhawks. Even those that had previously advocated evacuation had since settled down and were open to such a plan of action. It seemed that everyone was more level-headed than before. Shea's attempted coup and subsequent downfall had a sobering effect on the men, and this sensible, middle-of-the-road alternative was embraced by the vast majority. A vote was held. The eyes had it. Optimistic for the first time all day, which was nearing its end, the men of Messina rounded the bend. 
They were not the least bit frightened of the seated figure in the distance. They marched onward. With each passing second, the thing grew more and more detailed, but its features were known. It had lost its shock value. Many expected the monster to turn its head in their direction. Surely they would be noticed. But it didn't. And perhaps they weren't. Encouraged by the creature's unresponsiveness, maybe it was dead, some thought, the unit came to a halt upon reaching Shipwreck Cove. They stood amidst the so-called wreckage which had played such a significant part in Sammy's childhood, directly across from the rock and from the beast. They were as close as they could possibly be. The thing smelled, but this had no effect on their newfound courage. The colonel raised his revolver into the air and fired a warning shot. The thing didn't flinch. The colonel prepared to squeeze off another. Before he had the chance, to everyone's shock and appall, the thing spoke. Now is anyone's guess. It had nothing resembling a mouth or a jaw. It remained as still as ever. May I help you? It asked in a voice that was impossibly deep and alarmingly resounding. Although this was not exactly threatening, it was the most unsettling thing it could have possibly done. At least a roar would have been expected. Hearts sank, resolution dissolved, and many were ready to toss their guns away, break the ranks, and run for their lives. But not the colonel. Though he was surprised, he was not frightened. He would never be frightened. He had witnessed firsthand the atrocities committed by man. Nothing could be worse. You can understand me? I can, the thing said. I want you to leave. We all want you to leave. Go back to where you came from and never return. The crowd, temporarily inspired by the colonel's bravery and understanding that it was now or never, collectively screamed at the monster, ordering it to leave. All right, the monster said patiently as it slowly stood. I only wanted to help. Help? To protect you, it said as it turned toward the sea. From what? The thing began trudging into the water. You'll see. It soon disappeared beneath the waves. All were silent as it suddenly became uncommonly cool for a Saturday evening in August in 1963 in boring old Messina. Thank you for listening to The Thing on the Rock, written and narrated by Blake Benlin. Production, sound design, and music by myself, Daniel French, at Fishbonius Sound Design. I hope you've enjoyed your journey on the Chronosphere Fiction today. Please remember to become a patron at patreon.com and or donate through Venmo at at Fishbonius. Until next time, keep your cosmos clean.